Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. If you've got a Bible or a phone, uh, we're going to be in Revelation 7 again, as we were last week. We're going to be looking at verse, uh, ultimately verses 9 uh, through to 17, focusing on the uh, end bit of that passage and zooming in there. Uh, but let's first of all just, uh, I'm just give a bit of context to this book and what, we, what we'll do for the next while, so hopefully to fill it all in. Um, I'll, get a ch- I'll get a chance to preach in this book of Revelation. It's all been all, all uh, crazy stuff so far. It gets crazier after Christmas. There's dragon, the dragons and the beasts haven't quite emerged yet, so uh, we'll, we'll get them. If you know the book of Revelation, full of those big poetic images, different feel to this book uh, in the Bible, and we've been going through it for a little while. And I think Revelation often is seen as a very, very big picture book. Uh, it's kind of about these, many people say it's these, about these huge global events that are happening. And uh, even more, I guess, it kind of zooms out from the earth, doesn't it? As we've been in Revelation, it zooms out from the earth and it focuses on the other place, the heavens or in heaven. You've got this idea of John, the writer of Revelation. He looks into to, to heaven, to the place where God lives, to the spiritual reality uh, of the world. And so there's this huge kind of scope to Revelation that's really overwhelming, uh, I think I find a lot of the time. I think also it should be noticed that it seems, the book of Revelation, to cover a, a vast and enormous period of time. I mean, if you take one view of this book, and as you're probably aware, there are many different views of the book of Revelation, you'll see in this book the very, very beginning of time, I mean, before humans even existed, a kind of, you get a kind of origin, or some would say, you get a kind of origin story of the devil in this, in this book. And then you get like, uh, it takes you through the whole of human history, it includes, as we're going to find out in a few weeks, the birth of Jesus. There's an unusual nativity uh, story in Revelation, in Revelation 12, which we'll come to soon. And then it goes all the way through to this, some would say, great future tribulation, and then the second coming of Jesus. So in the 20, I think it's 21 chapters, you've got quite a large sweep Uh, in this book. But the danger with all this is the big picture nature of it all can make everything seem very, very distant to us about what's happening. And the book of Revelation is kind of uh, mind-blowingly vast and it throws up these questions. It's intriguing, but we often find it hard to put ourselves into the book of Revelation. Where, Where do we fit here? And we've got bits of writing to a church in Laodicea, wherever that might be, or in Smyrna. But what about Church Central South? Where does that fit in? And where do I fit in and the things I'm going through uh, fit into this book? It obviously wasn't written to anyone in this room, personally. It was written to seven churches in, in a kind of a Turkey sort of area in that time. But also, God's Word speaks beyond that. And uh, we don't want to remove ourselves completely, obviously, from this book. Now, well, I think that the book of Revelation does operate on that large level, but I think there is another way to read this book, which doesn't contradict the big picture approach. We need that as well. But it is in this book as well. And I think this book actually, the book of Revelation, can be seen as a guidebook for every Christian to navigate our own specific experience of life in the world and the time that we live in. I think it operates on at least three levels. I don't want to get too technical. You'll see where I'm going with this in a, in a sec. But the book of Revelation operates clearly written for a specific audience at a specific time, in a kind of Turkey uh, kind of area around Middle East in the first century. There are seven actual churches, uh, I mean, I would believe that would be my take in Revelation, 
that John, the author, had some sort of oversight on that he's writing to those specific people to encourage them. It's the end of the first century. There's a specific context there, and it's speaking to them. Uh, my take would be that it also, as it does that, inspired by the Spirit, Revelation maps out these patterns of God's work in history ever since, actually, for any Christian, for anyone who lives as, as God's people since. And, and uh, the way spiritual battles are played out in Revelation... Uh, actually, they kind of just, in a sense, repeat themselves over and over again through time with the same kind of outcomes that happen in the 1st century, 2nd century, 10th century, 21st century, and also always the same headline. And the same headline, I don't know if you spotted this headline running through uh, Revelation as we've gone through so far, is that God will bring his church through all of this to victory. And it's kind of, that's true of the first century, that's true of these patterns throughout history. So that's another layer to see uh, this book. But I want to focus on this third level today, uh, that this is relevant to each of us in our lives in a micro way as well. And I recognize there's a kind of danger here of doing the classic thing that we as Westerners always do with the Bible, that we make it all about me. It's, we live in a very individualistic culture. But I think I do have some, I do have some uh, permission in the passage to do this, because John makes it very clear and Jonathan's brought this out a couple of times as we've spoken already, that this book is relevant to, 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 to you, to me, you singular, to me singular. Revelation 1 verse 3, John starts off, he says, God blesses the one who reads the words of the prophecy to the church. I don't think that's just me. I don't think that's just John either. Okay, And he blesses all who listen to its message. This is where you come in and obey what it says for the time is near. Blesses, God blesses the one. He blesses us as we listen. He blesses us as we hear. He blesses us as we wrestle with these truths in our individual experiences, in our individual church experience as well. I think God gave us revelation because he cares about his unfolding purposes throughout history and he gave us revelation because he cares about the church but you know what he gave us revelation because he cares about you as well he cares about you the one who reads this book message who keeps it and takes it to heart and he promises in this book he blesses each of us as we wrestle with passages like we're looking at today and so I think while John was writing a lot of the people whose friends were dying at the hands of the Roman authorities in the first century I think he was writing to them Definitely, he's writing to comfort them, to help them. I think he's always also writing to those of us who are friends of Andy Back today, to comfort us and to give us hope too. Actually, he's also writing to those of you here who never knew Andy, this guy that we're talking about today, but who live in a world where our friends die, and in a world where one day all of us as well will die. So this is very relevant to all of us. And Again, I'm going, kind of just trying to give a bit of context, but I'm sure you've noticed this. If you've ever come across Revelation, even if you've not listened to this series, death is kind of a big thing in Revelation. It happens a lot. And some of the deaths are reasonably grisly as well. We haven't got to the grisliest ones yet. They do come, and you're like, whoa. Okay. <laughs> I've had the, the joy of planning kids' work sessions on these Revelation sermons. So whenever you're in like the service and you hear that talk, that was heavy, just think about the kids' workers, would you? Just spare them a thought. And for like, uh, those of us who are trying to craft talks about it, because there's a lot of death uh, in this book. Now, just again, contextually, we're going to land this in a moment. But um, as I've said, this book was written uh, during times of major persecution in the Christian church under the uh, Emperor, Roman Emperor Nero and Domitian. Uh, at the end of the first century, where Christians were dying, sometimes in quite horrific ways, and lots of them were dying for their faith. 
And it features all through this book. And so often, actually, the first century martyrs appear as characters in the book. We've seen them uh, a number of times. So you've got this uh, appearance they make, I think it's in chapter 6, where they're kind of pictured under the altar, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord? And what they mean is, how long till you avenge us for the people who killed us for our faith? Wow, that's stark. They're, They're in the story in that way. The passage I want to drill on in on here, this passage in chapter 7 as well, is also directly about these characters, these people who have died for their faith. And I'm going to focus in on the last four verses, but let's just read from verse 9 again. We were here last week, but we're going to be here again uh, for some context. I think I'm going to read from the NIV. I'm going to jump around, to be honest, guys. I like, bear with me today. I've, uh, my printer didn't work. <laughs> we don't have the NLT on the computer. We were winging it to a degree. But anyway, I'm going to be in the NIV. I'm going to read from verse, let's go from verse 9, and I'll pause in a minute. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, He's in white robes. Who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Just pause there, uh, shall we? What have we got going on in this passage? Well, we've got this huge crowd in heaven, uh, in the place where God is, this other, uh, other reality, God's throne room. And there's more than you can count there. And they're, they're, but this, this group, they're clothed, clothed in white. And what are they doing? They're worshipping God, and they're worshipping the Lamb. I know it's not a massive kind of, intrigue to you, but we will come back to the lamb in a couple of minutes, uh, so if you're wondering who that is. But they're worshipping God, and they're worshipping the lamb. And who are these people? Well, they're those, it says, who died in the great tribulation. They died in the great tribulation. Again, <laughs> with Revelation, you're trying to just exhort, but you have to keep just stopping at certain terms. You've just got to explain this to you for a second. What is the great tribulation? Well, the great tribulation, again, has a couple of layers. These are martyrs from the first century, people who were killed by the mainly by the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, But I think also they can be read to be understood as all martyrs ever, all of those who've died for their faith uh, over time. Uh, I think both of those things are true, and most people would just say, yeah, that that could be understood in this passage. Um, If you want to go, like, all back to the future, there's no time in heaven, so... Okay, so we can do those. I think we can do that. Um, And that much is obvious. But again, here's a moment, I think, when Christians remove ourselves from this passage, because therefore we think, okay, this is distant past, or this is like something removed from my experience. Because the reality of the experience is that while many Christians do die for their faith, most Christians don't die deliberately for their faith. So if we're in that latter category, we think, well, okay, this is really interesting about these heroes of faith, but where am I in this whole story? Now, also you've got this kind of phrase as well that throws in here, which is this great tribulation. And while this is clearly referring this passage to the first century, I think when we talk about the great tribulation, 
often people think of it like this. They would think that in the future, at some point, just before Jesus comes back, things are going to get really, really, really bad for the church. Probably before that, we were just all swelling along and rocking about and everything's going okay. But at the end, whoa, great tribulation. That's going to be awful, awful, awful. The darkness becomes as dark as it can possibly be, but then the sun rises over the horizon. Jesus returns. Whew, that's, we've got to make it through that. And it's, it's a specific historical event. Now, I just don't know. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know about what I think about that. I don't even know whether I agree or disagree. Um, but I think where I'm at is I think that putting it in that way is problematic for a load of reasons. Like I've said already, it pushes us out of the story. And actually, there's great tribulations happening all the time, all over the place. There are people, if you're a Christian living in, I don't know, in Iran at the moment, you're going through the stuff you see in Revelation in the most extreme form you could possibly be. And that would be the case in many countries across the world. And actually, it's been the case in our country's country before, and I'm sure will again. And we would be going through, I would say, a different kind of great tribulation in our church experience, our nation, that's a lot more subtle, but is also spiritually corrosive, which is the tribulation of just being appeased into compromise. It's it's a different tribulation. I'm not saying it's worse than what's going on in other countries of the world, but it also is a, is, a, is a tribulation of sorts. Will it get worse for everybody at some point? I don't know. But actually, what I do know is we deal with tribulation, each of us, now. And actually, let's go even in further than that. I think we can see this stuff more personally. All of you in this room will go through great tribulations in your life. I will. And some of that is happening now. Some of you will know that stuff. Some of you know times of your life. You say, I call it like that. It was a great tribulation. And the New Testament is absolutely clear on this from start to finish. Almost every writer, almost every page says to us, Christian, Christian, don't be fooled that your life is going to be easy now. There's trouble coming. There's suffering coming. There's pain coming. And then it says bizarre things like this, like James 1 verse 2. When troubles of any time come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. <laughs> and you're like, what? So it's saying, one hand saying, guys, there's going to be trouble. There's great tribulation coming for each one of you, and it's going to look very different. But there's also joy that can be had in that tribulation for each one of you as well. And the call consistently throughout the New Testament, as that comes through, the call is this, is always this. So endure to the end. Keep going to the end. Keep trusting to the end. And faith, Christian faith then, is, is twinned with this other word that comes in that we don't talk about enough. We talk lots of faith. The other one, talked about, we talk about it so much in our family. We talk about it. I think we talk about this word more than you. Hope. We talk about that. <laughs> our daughter's called Hope. That's why. <laughs> um, it's hope. It's faith now, but it's hope to the future. We, want to live with, we, we, we live in hope. We live in hope for the future of what's coming, despite the fact that things are tough and they're going to get tough. Yeah, the Bible's clear. Life will be full of much joy. Of course it will. But it also will contain pain and difficult times too. And our call is to maintain faith and hope in Jesus throughout. Whatever your end times theology, I can guarantee you of this. You will go through your great tribulation. And for many of us, we will be going through it right now. We will all, to use the psalmist's words, travel through the valley of the shadow of death. And that will involve the deaths of others, and that will involve our own deaths too. 
our culture is it's a strange it's a strange time to be talking about this. It's probably a better time than normal, actually. Um, our culture has been trying to hide away from this for quite some time <laughs> and ignore this for quite some time. I would make what I've just said kind of think, oh, dear, this is a bit, a bit hefty this morning, isn't it? Wow, goodness me. Um, in fact, you could probably say that in many ways, if you want to understand 21st century Western culture, the whole thing is a project to escape the reality of death. That's what we've been trying to do, and we are trying to do, to, to say there is no valley of the shadow of death. You can go on a different route through life without going through that valley. You can have the calm waters, and you can have the green pastures, and let's just take a detour around the valley of the shadow of death to the table set before you with a cup overflowing. The, the culture wouldn't use those, the biblical language, but that's kind of what we've been trying to do. And a lot of that's really great, to prolong life as long as possible. Thank goodness for medical advances in that, that direction to relieve pain and suffering. One of the things I'm most happy about when I study history is uh, that I don't have to live in times where they didn't have anaesthetic for toothache. It's quite specific, but I don't like the idea of people ripping out my teeth without anaesthetic. Okay? I just don't like it. Okay? So we don't have that stuff, we, and that's really good. I'm really glad about that. But at the same time as all that, there's something going on behind it that's saying, actually, we want to just not think about this. And so the other parts of culture are all designed to distract you from these realities. Let's just entertain ourselves. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. And then what happens is death becomes the final taboo that you can't talk about, that you're not allowed to, to even discuss. Because, no, no, we can talk about sex now. That's fine. Anyone can talk about sex anytime you want. I mean, we'll teach the kids about that quite explicit ways about the age of six. Fine. But death, what do we do about death? It's really interesting. I was, uh, as an RE teacher, uh, years ago, uh, I was a pretty poor RE teacher for my first year of teaching RE. I didn't know what I was doing. And I had some classes, particularly year eights, who were shockingly behaved, and I didn't have a clue what to do with them. But I found out the best way you can get year eights to behave and engage in a class is talk about death. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thing. And so what would usually... Ha- we had the whole module on religious response to death, and the first lesson would always be, um, right, we're going to talk about death today. And this class, who were, like, throwing stuff and being annoying and putting that, can I underline the title, sir? Shut up. And suddenly the mood changes and there's an, a warmth comes to them. I want to talk about this. And it was always a little awkward because someone would put their hand up and go, look, oh, look, a space. Let's have a safe space here. Let's talk about our experience of death. And someone would put their hand up and say, like my, my cousin died a couple of years ago. These are like 12-year-old kids. And, wow. and then somebody just burst into tears at the back and go, <gasps> My goldfish died yesterday. And it was always completely like, okay, this is weird. But they wanted to talk about death. And it was like they had never been allowed to talk about death before. And for those kids, that was really, really important. Last week, um, uh, Happy and Healthy Halloween uh, that um, Owen and Anna put on in Northfield, loads of us came, came to help with, um, which is brilliant. Thank you so much, for Owen and Anna. Might be here somewhere. I, yeah, I, they're hide, Anna's hiding at the back. Uh, and those who came to help, I thought it was a wonderful event. But one of the things that uh, went on was uh, having a, a tent where people could go and just remember uh, people who died. That was it. And again, it was, it was people went straight, yeah, I, I want to do this. Again, some teenagers would come in. Teenagers who probably think, well, how are we going to react with these guys? Are these guys going to cause some, some bother? No, we want to remember. We want to think, we want to talk about death. Um, just heard out last week, one, uh, there's a cultural phenomenon at the moment called death cafes. Has anyone heard of death cafes? 
Yeah, a couple. It was because I heard it from Helen. <laughs> that's, that's why. Um, through, through Gemma. So I might get some of the facts wrong. But um, apparently it's a real thing of like, it's a very simple idea. Cafes that set up just to provide a space where strangers can come together and talk about death in a safe space where they can process that information and, and their experiences and things like that. And this is, this is a thing that is getting lots of traction funding-wise from the government. They're really keen on this. Thing. This is an excellent thing to do. Because people want to talk about this stuff. Because this stuff, however much we've tried to distract ourselves from this, and however much we've tried to technologize our way out of this, we need to talk about it. And so there's a space now, and I think it's obviously come a lot from the fact that over the last few years in a global pandemic, that we've, I think there's a recognition that we cannot on our own beat death. We can't do it. Elon Musk might think we can, but the rest of us realize, no, we can't do it. We're not going to all be immortal and half cyborgs for the rest of time. We need to deal with this. And so death comes. Let's talk about it. And I think that's really good. I think it's really good to talk about death. But if that's all we can do about death, we're in real trouble. Because it's just, oh, I think this, I think this, I think this. Yeah, but we're all going to die. What are we going to do about that? We're in real trouble. Is that all we can do? Can we just have death cafes? Can we just have RE lessons with Mr. Meller to keep the class uh, from kicking off? No, we can't. There's more to it than that. Let's uh, go on and see what happens in these last few verses here. What's happened to these group of people? They've, these ones who died in the tribulation. They've died for their faith. And uh, What do we see? Let's go to verse 15. Let's get the right version as well. Therefore, it says, they, this group of people, are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. Again, I'll just stop there. First thing that we've got as Christians, it's not going to be a massive revelation for you, I would imagine, if you're here as a Christian. And if you're not here as a Christian, you'll imagine I was going to say this, but it's very important. Death is not the end for us. Death is not the end. When we talk about the death, we're not talking about the end of the, oh, right, that's that then. Done. Unfortunately, that's, they had their go, molecules go into space and all of that sort of stuff. No, death is not the end. When we die, we live on. But what kind of life? Well, I'm not going to go into this massive detail, but I love, again, just so you know, clock this. With Revelation, what you've got to do with Revelation is you've got to get your poetry brain in gear. I don't know if anyone spotted this. But you, you, sometimes it's not just, I will explain to you this exact verse and what this message meant here and then. That's not what we do with poetry. I'd advise for some of these sermons, go and read some, I don't know, some Keats or some uh, Yeats or, I don't know, Larkin or something. Poetry is a different way to think. It's metaphor, it's symbol, and it's all over here. And so I'm not going to explain loads of this, but just soak in these images. Look at the images it gives us. What, what kind of life is there for us? Well, this is what kind of life there is for us. These people who died, this is what it says about them. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Just think about it. What does that mean for you? Him who sits on his throne, is the one who rules, will spread his tent over them. There's other biblical images we could put in here that God is, we sung some actually, God is our refuge. He's our shelter. He's our strong fortress. When we die, what happens? Well, we get to go into the shelter of the Most High, fully. We get to know some of that now, actually, but fully. That's where they are. 
He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. You can just think about this one as well. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Yeah, interesting. And I'm not going to talk much about it. I'm just going to think about it. What does that mean? It's a wonderful image. Does that mean there are no McDonald's in heaven? <laughs> I think it's probably a bit more than that, isn't it? Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. What about this? The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. Again, we, we have a hope that there is life after this life, and it's a good life. And that is where Andy is now, right now. The sun is not scorching him. He doesn't hunger or thirst. The one who sits on the throne will spread his tent over him. That's where your Christian friends are who died over the time of COVID. That's where they are now. That's where our Christian friends and family who die in the coming years are going to go. And for you, here sitting today, if you faithfully follow Jesus to the end, that's where you'll be. The king will spread his tent over you. Never again will you hunger. Never again will you thirst. The sun will not beat upon you, nor any scorching heat. That's good. It's good. That's why we celebrate, and we can celebrate while we cry. It's good news. And it's a great stirring thing for a kind of, hey, someone's died, let's talk about this. It's wonderfully comforting. But let's face it, that's not a million miles from what anybody says when someone dies, is it? Is it? It's like they've gone to be in a better place. I'm sure they're looking down from heaven with the angels right now. I mean, whatever you believe before the funeral, that's what you say at the funeral. I think that's often the way it goes. So again, are we just being kind of vague, fingered, fingers crossed optimists here? No, because the next bit of the passage grounds this spectacularly in the person we've been singing about. Listen to this. Why do all this? Why can we say this? For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. The Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And just bring us all up to speed. Who is this Lamb on the throne here? Who is he? We've met him already in Revelation. Revelation 5, verse 6, this is what John says. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Doesn't sound like a promising image, does it? Like a lamb that looks as if it's been killed is there. This is the same lamb we're talking about here. I don't think you need to be a biblical scholar to know who we're talking about, do you? (laughs) This is Jesus. John the Baptist said it when he saw Jesus coming to him for baptism. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The reference is to a practice in the Old Testament where uh, someone would take a lamb to the priest and that lamb would be an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice to take away the sins of the person. The basic idea would be that the person, I've, I've done some sins, I've done some things that, that are bad, that deserve to be punished. I'm going to take this lamb to the priest. He's going to then kill the lamb. And my, it's as if my bad doings, bad doings, bad things I've done, are transferred to the lamb and he, the lamb is punished in my place. So the result is forgiveness. Okay, it's a mechanism for forgiveness. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of of this world. And Jesus was that lamb. 
and he looked like he'd been slaughtered. Why did he look like he'd been slaughtered? Well, because he had been slaughtered. He'd been killed. He'd not been killed on an altar in, a, in Solomon's temple. He was killed. He was slaughtered on the cross. But look where he is now. Before, it was, I saw a lamb that looked like he'd been slaughtered. Where's the lamb now? The lamb is at the center of the throne. He's at the center of the throne. The cross was not the end for Jesus. He came through death and he rose again. Philippians 2, 6 to 11, gives us the whole picture of this whole trajectory of what we're seeing here. The lamb that was slaughtered to the lamb on the throne. This is how it happened. Though he was God, Jesus we're talking about here, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Lamb that was slaughtered. But then what do we have then? Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now again, unlikely again to be new news for you as a Christian. Jesus died and rose again. But you know what? This is the understatement of the century. It's always worth dwelling on that a little bit more. It's an incredible, and especially at times like this, when we think about living in the valley of the shadow of death, this is not just the USP of Christianity. This is not just a good story that you can build a religion on. Now, this is the way we get through and thrive in the life that we live that is marked by death. And it's the only way we could thrive. We live in a world marked by death, where the shadow of death is everywhere, And we have a saviour who faced that feature of our reality, the most extreme feature of our reality, and came out the other side. That's the foundation of our hope, and what a foundation that is. That's not just, I think they're looking down on us, I think they are. That's because there was a guy who lived who died and came out the other side. And what will he do? What will this guy do? He will lead them. He will lead them. Christianity is not just about some doctrines that help us. Here's 12 rules of life. Think about these things, they help you. It's about a man who did a load of stuff and now comes to us again and he leads us. Do you need leading through the valley of the shadow of death? You might feel that now. You might be thinking, this is not where I'm at at the moment. I was quite happy before I came here. Thanks, Johnny. Um, But you will need leading. He will lead them. He comes to us, he grabs our hand, he takes us. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. And this can be true for every one of us when we go on that journey ourselves, if we let him. And it's also true of us as we deal with the death that goes on around us. As those friends that we know die, we cry. We thirst for a better world. We might get angry and think, why is the world like this? Why do people get taken for us? We might thirst for an end to pain and to loss. But my encouragement would be to take those tears and that thirst to Jesus because he has life-giving water for us now. He's led Andy to life-giving water. That's what he's got now. But he leads us there now, even as we confront the shadow of death. 
please don't just, don't just talk about it. Please do talk about it, whoever it might be, wherever you confront this, talk about it. Very important to talk about it. Don't just talk about it. Bring it to Jesus. Put out your hand and say, Jesus, lead me through my grief. Jesus, lead me through my pain. For some of us, we'll, all of us will know this in one way or another. For some will be more protracted than others. Jesus, lead me through the, when I'm dying. Lead me through death. Because he will lead us. He'll lead us to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from our eyes. Because the lamb that looked like it had been slaughtered is now the lamb that's on the throne. And he's on the throne now, and he will always be on the throne. And he offers to everybody, everybody here, wherever we're up to, the chance to take his hand and be led through this life. Through green pastures, through quiet waters, and through the valley of the shadow of death. And to quote Psalm 23, then what happens is he prepares a table before us. In the presence of our enemies, our cup overflows. He's a God who's got good things for us. He went through that pain so we didn't have to just be ended there. We could come through too. And you know what? It's the thing I think that I'm most happy about being a Christian. It's why I think on a morning like this morning with the kind of sadness and the slight logistical panic at some points, if I'm being honest, this is what we do, guys, as Christians. This is who we are. We cry and we celebrate. Thank you, Jesus, that you conquered death. Thank you, Jesus, one day we'll get to see you. I'm not looking forward to pain. I'm not looking forward to suffering. I'm not looking forward to loss. But I'm looking forward to being led by Jesus to streams of living water. I encourage you to take that opportunity too.